hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Welcome back to uh, Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. I am here today with a second time, I'm going to say inmate, <laughs> as if I've dragged him back in against his will, Stephen Alexander. Say hello, Stephen. Hello, hello. How are you, Joe? Oh, my word. Normally I say that. Um, yeah, I'm really okay. well, thank you. Uh, I had a bit of a shopping trip in Brighton today. I've got a glass of gin in my hand and I'm talking to a good friend. I mean... <laughs> How are you uh, today? I've got I've got decaf coffee and I've been to work, but I'm okay. <laughs> it's fine. Okay, in in, um, in winning life, I think I've won today. All right, <laughs> absolutely. You've got a very high score today. And uh, I, I oh I've, I've lost it already. I showed you my fabulous haul that I got from Brian today, but it seems to have gone missing. Yes. Uh, oh, si- well, you've lost it already. What? Okay, so it's a Cyberman helmet with a brain in it. What is that actually from? Uh, that is from Age of Steel, uh, Cybermen of the Cybermen but when they came back, and it's um, did they have the brains? He's only got the brain in one, the one episode, hasn't he? Is it the next Doctor? Is that the one with the brains in it? No, the next Doctor has he's got he's got a black surround with the brain in it, but that's oh, Lumix. Lumix, Lumix, yeah, the, uh, the the cyber controller. Stephen, your Cyberman trivia is extraordinary. But no, I've taken enough photos of them. We are not here to talk about Cybermen today, are we? We are going one tier higher. What are we talking yes. about? We are talking about one of the very earliest Doctor Who stories, uh, which is widely known as AKA the Daleks. <laughs> AKA. It's a very important addition. Yes. Well, what? Now, I don't recall asking you to do the Daleks, so you must have chosen this. Yes, I did. Um, and I've got a very good reason for that, which is previously I did Survival, which was three episodes. And I thought with seven episodes, uh, to quote Colin Baker, we could have even more of me. <laughs> um, make um, me happy if no one else. Well, that would make me extremely happy. It means like, it means rather than just spending how long Survival? An hour and a half, an hour and a bit? Yeah. I get at least two and a half hours with you this time. <laughs> And it's, it's such a therapy a, session. It is well, it probably might be. Um, it's such an interesting story, though, isn't it? Like, in terms of firsts, you know, first Dalek story, first Alien World. Yes. Anymore? Yes, it's so, so different from anything that's come before, and that's something I want to have a look at as we go through it. Is like how what it would have been like watching this in 1963. That's what I'm trying to imagine, because it's so hard to to put yourself in that mindset. I think it's really interesting that part one um, hovered around six million and part seven scored ten and a half. So somewhere yes. it's not often in a Doctor Who story where the ratings like jump four million higher, is it? Usually it goes the other way around. The what episode one is like the biggie. Uh, yes. And I was watching the documentary on the beginning set the other day and saw a conception of what the Daleks might have looked like and there mm. were these like weird hexagonal shapes with calipers and i don't know if they would have caught on as well you know it's it well obviously we'll talk about the the design when we get to them but i think it is an extraordinary um combination of events that led up to a magnificent stroke of luck and skill and um yeah and something that is uh 
utterly, utterly beguiling. And it's so hard to explain why. It's so hard to really understand the appeal of the Daleks. But go, um, before we go in, uh, the thing that really struck me was how everybody was on board to make these things as out there and as different from what had come before as possible. From the voice to the look to the movement. Like they put actors in them, for God's sake. They, they didn't put operators in. They put uh, bloody actors in these things to make them move. Okay. Yes. All right, all right. Okay. We're already talking about the story. Should we just go into the yes. story? Yes, let's actually watch the story, shall we? Okay, let's do it. Um, why don't you count me in? Okay, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do the very exciting thing with the Hartnell 7 Passer, and my mouse cursor is hovering over the play all button. Oh, my God. Oh, uh, are you watching from the beginning box set? Uh, yes, I am. Then you need to press yes. play for a second because you're going to have a little bit uh, of Ian, Barbara, and Susan wandering oh, about. Yes. Oh, God's sake. All right, okay, I'll count you in, uh, in 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 five seconds after I've counted you in, okay? So I'm going to say <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, and you come in in five, four, three, Dalek, 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 spinning Dalek, um, Hartnell with a thing on his head, Doctor Who at the beginning, three, <laughs> two, one, now. Okay. <laughs> That's the best countdown I've had on this yet. Oh gosh, that is quite loud. I'm going to sit down. There we go. There we go. Oh, hello. Right, so I've got it on my headphones. Get the levels right. There we go. Okay. Immediately, this title <laughs> sequence. Can I confess? This is my favourite title sequence because yes. I I don't think it's ever quite as bloody weird as this ever again. I. I, okay, so there's a number. Uh, anyway, there's another that come close, but I think we'll go into the title sequence another time okay. because here are the TARDIS, the original TARDIS crew, the time travellers, the family. They look an absolute um, state. Where have they been? It's like they've been running around in a forest for four episodes. <laughs> yeah, there's usually a forest of fear or a cave of terror <laughs> or something for them, isn't there? I love that. You really that that the the, the dial. So the second they turn away, it goes straight to danger. <laughs> yes, you know they're in danger because the little doll said they were in danger. Um, when I first got this on the VHS set, so this opening shot is a murky shot of the jungle. Yeah, what is that about? Uh, I, I it's it's done with like loads of filters and stuff. But the very first time I saw it, I thought it was like an aerial view of the planet showing all the continents wow. and shapes. Wow. Okay, that's that's quite a nice. I mean, clearly it is the forest with filter yes. over it. That, that's, that's a, I mean, that would have been a, a more interesting opening. Yeah, to actually see the planet Scaro from the outside. And then, of course, Barbara tops up. And unless she's the size of uh, Africa, it's not uh, but it, It's not likely to be. It takes a while for that filter to go, doesn't it? About now. Yeah. And I always figure it's like, it was supposed to like signify the radiation or something. Like, yeah, yeah, it's why it's... It, as you said, it's, it's one of the things where everyone's sort of pulling together to make it as weird as possible. And you get the weird filter and they're all being very experimental. Um, and it must have been really exciting to work on this one in particular, because it's the first alien world. Yeah. It's the first, uh, you know, attempt to do something different. And everybody just goes for it, don't they? You know, it's, Richard uh, Martin says, "I we did not know how this was going to turn out, but we all just went for it. Yeah, and I think I think you've got a combination of some really talented people putting this together from the designers, the special sound as well. Is that Brian Hodgson? 
Like the sounds in this are extraordinary. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it Tristan? Ke- I'm going to look at my book because I don't want to get this wrong. There's Tristan Carey on this one. I think he, he's done he, lots did, of. He did the music, didn't he? Tristan Carey, or did he yes. do both? I think he did. He did music and soundscape because there's a couple in this one, uh, Brian Hodgson and Tristan Carey, that are used like uh, throughout the Dalek serials, aren't they? So you get the famous uh, Thal Wind, uh, oh, yeah. which blows through generations of uh, Doctor Who stories. The Dalek heartbeat well. in the city, which, yeah, you know, yeah. is iconic. <laughs> yes, that, that I, you know, when that came back in the new series, uh, it's just like My. two of the greatest sound effects, the, the TARDIS materialization and that Dalek heartbeat, um, and all done like, it's just terrifying to imagine. It was all done with mechanically with oscilloscopes and bits yeah. of tape that were cut up and sliced together. I always imagined like some mad professor sound engineer and this enormous contraption, and he's just basically like assaulting it to get noises to come out of it. Yes, I don't know if you've seen the documentaries or if you've been to the Radiophonic Workshop live, then you'll have pretty much seen them doing exactly that. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> okay. Yes. It's, it's a treat. It's always a treat. Oh, look, Susan's found a beautiful flower. Well, oh, it'll be very fragile. Okay, you've just said the swear word there, Susan. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that the first season of Doctor Who is near perfect, just like I think mm. the first season of New Who is near perfect. But yeah. there is always one sticking fault. And for me, that's Susan. My God, what's that? It's a rather brilliant little model and uh, a better monster design than a lot of the actual monsters we had um, are the uh, Magma- Magmadon. Yes, God, yeah. I've forgotten already. It reminds me of the Sand Beast, Sandy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's got the similar eyes on stalks and stuff. It just looks great, doesn't it? Yeah, I'd love to see that animated, the new series, scuttling about and uh, attracting metal insects into its, uh, well, into its heart. They went to Scaro, didn't they, in Series 9? They could have done that. In there CGI. were lots of things they could have done. Oh, <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, but <laughs> it's an interesting find because this is our kind of confirmation that this isn't Earth. You know, like there's nothing like this on Earth. Yes. Yes, there, there sort of never has been. Um, and yeah, yeah. And it, so they, they, you, you have got a kind of family here, haven't you? Because you've got the, uh, I think there's more to it meets the eye you've got the mum and the dad so you've got lovely old mum barbara oh, you've got best. ian cheston who's who's the father figure yeah. uh you've got the dossy old uncle stroke grandfather um who's a kind of he's a kind of a joker character in a way particularly in this one because he's the one who gets them into trouble all the time he's the one yeah. who's uh always uh fiddling with his fluid links and uh <laughs> Causing all kinds of problems. Well, the, the the term anti-hero gets thrown around quite a lot, and I don't think he's quite yeah. an anti-hero because, like, you compare him to somebody like Avon in Blake Seven, and he's not as like devious as that, but he's definitely like snarky and self-centered, and he's not very nice at times. No, but it becomes clear particularly in the story following this one, and certainly later on, that it, he's, he's very insecure, I think. Yeah. It comes from insecurity and um, feeling of, uh, you know, he's, he's, fri- he's actually frightened of Ian and Barbara in a way. He doesn't want to get them too involved and too 
um, and, and let them get let anyone get close. Um, and, and that's usually sort of a, a symptom of insecurity, isn't it? His bluster as well is very often because one, he doesn't know where they are. Two, he doesn't really know how to work the ship very well. And so he's always being a complete arsehole because it's covering up the fact that he doesn't really know what's going on, really, does he? <laughs> no, he doesn't he doesn't know what's going on. And but he's got that kind of pride and arrogance yeah. that says, Oh yes, I know much better than you, Mr. Chesterman. Yeah. Um, Chesterman. But, Chesterman, Chesterman. Uh but he, he often he, he doesn't have a clue. But then also he can be incredibly intelligent mm. and he can be, you know, he knows about this planet and he knows about radiation poisoning. So he's got a huge wealth of knowledge. I just, this and, is one of the few times I'd say where the, where the doctor is selfish enough. <gasps> okay. I need to stop yeah. one saying for a second, because that shot yes. of the city is extraordinarily good. It, what I like to see a, a, an effects shot that successful in Doctor Who this early is, is incredible. When you think of the cities you get in Keys of Aranus. <laughs> oh, no. oh the, you mean the perspective backdrops and things. Yes. Yeah. And the model this, work as well. There's a, there's a shot in a minute where you've got mist rolling into the model work and it's r super ominous. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. And uh, facts, um, Raymond Kusick built it all from containers that he got from Woolworths. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's what I understand anyway from wow, the, the, the scant research I've done. Um, so, yeah, but what kind of containers do they have at Woolworths? Because that's absolutely crazy. It looks incredible. And um, there, I think you've got kind of Doctor Who in the nutshell, essentially being made out of, you know, fairy liquid bottles and things like that and it's an alien yeah. city it's it's incredible like like yes you can take something so mundane as objects of Woolworths and stimulate kids imagination in a huge way yeah and they make it believable and it's a combination of judging what you can do right with the effects and having the actors who totally totally believe what they're doing um Whenever you talk, whenever you watch an interview with uh, William Russell, mm -hmm. he always said they always treated it like Shakespeare. They always treated it as one hundred percent the, you know, the, a, a proper acting job. They never took it uh, lightly, and it really pays off. Um, although I do think William Russell does sometimes take it quite lightly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, there was a scene you... a minute ago between Ian and Barbara where they were talking about how scared they were and how they didn't know where they were and weirdly enough as the show gets like repeats this formula with new companions you start losing those scenes so you mm. don't get moments where the companions are talking about the experience and, and the terror of time travel because the audience at home are very used to the idea so the characters just, like dodo just walks out and goes oh i'm in Whitsnade zoo and then the adventure continues you know yeah and that's what makes these early ones so exciting in a different way and what really sucks you in is that these yeah look susan's terrified um susan's always terrified they, let's be honest oh yeah well yeah yeah well she's she's the uh the fourth member of the family isn't she she's the annoying sister um you know you can't can't bear to get away well there's always doing something that you don't approve of whether it's screaming or losing her shoe or whatever I don't think anybody ever talks about Susan about calling her the irritating dot, the annoying dot. Like they always preempt it with a word like that. 
But yes. Yeah. But you look yes. at the original documents where, so on the the, D, the DVD extra where they, it shows you the formation of the show, um, she was supposed to be a lot more sort of unearthly and exotic and weird. And Sydney Newman yeah. basically said, no, we need a young girl to get into a lot of trouble and basically, you know, like trip herself up all the time. Yes. And I think it does create uh, an important audience identification figure and widens the family because there's a fifth member of this family obviously um which is you it's the me me it's you you at home yes you 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 are a part of this family you fit in you're the brother to that sister or you're the um well actually mainly the all the sisters that sister um that's that's a terrific reading yeah i'd never thought of that but you're absolutely that that is absolutely what you are in these early stories you're going on this journey with them yeah yeah and it's taking the viewer into time and space and yeah it's it's the four of them and the viewer at home you know whether they're on their own or with their family or whatever but they you, you can feel yourself part of this tardis crew and I, you know i sometimes I, well watching telly you always tend to think about how you might react in a similar situation um but this way you've got a family out there with you um yeah which works very well. These I days. think it's really rare for me in Doctor Who to be able to say that's that's essentially me on these travels. I think Ian and Barbara are very good identification figures. I yeah. think Rose does it really well in the new series, um, yeah. mostly because she's a selfish bitch and so am I. Um, but very often the companions get quirky, don't they, as the classic series goes along and they're a bit less like us. Yeah. Yes, that's uh, why Ace was so good, I think, because she, although she wasn't a, a me kind of identification figure, she was somebody who I could understand and appreciate. I, you know, I felt, I, I probably didn't know anyone quite like her, but I felt like I knew people like her. Do you know, so weirdly, I, mean, I think the person whose reaction to the TARDIS I would most mirror, and it's one of my least favourite companions, is Tegan. She just goes in and she's completely horrified for an episode, isn't she? Like, her whole world has been turned upside down. <laughs> yeah, poor old Tegan. Um, but she she meets it with an appropriate amount of strop. So well done, Tegan. Yeah, she she never oh, had yeah. any trouble with strop. Oh, the now finish... this is a rather wonderful aspect of Doctor Who. Steam running, or steam murdering you, sorry. No, go um, on. Go which for is it. seeing the food machine, which is the only time we see it, isn't it? You never see them eat. Uh, well, apart from the five doctors, I think. No, wait, the wheel in space? Don't they eat something in the wheel in space as well? Yeah, but nobody's watched the wheel in space. Oh, Even okay. if you watch the recon, it's too boring. Um, Look how high tech it is with those little dials. Look. <laughs> That's all you need. You just need to dial up the colour and the number, and then you get a nice, nice uh, salty bit of bacon. Did you um, ever, Did you ever hear Rob Shearman's reading of this machine? The, what was his opinion of it? Well, because he only had like this uh, old audio copy of this story, so all he had to go on was that thing going, <laughs> and he thought that there was someone riding a bicycle in the TARDIS ringing a bell. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Maybe not quite the right sound effect for the food machine. What would you dial up on the food machine? Um, well, uh, I, I think I'd go with Ian's choice, to be honest. Terribly dull, but, uh, you know, bacon and egg first. Um, oh, I'd go for something well, very difficult, really difficult. Like, um, I don't know, like, like a, I, I want a meze, please, a five-course meze. 
Yes, yes. Or the uh, everlasting gobstopper. Or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. There's that. That's it's in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where they have that chocolate that's a different flavour with every bite, isn't it? That's right. And that's like the food machine, isn't it? But the the texture's all wrong. So because um, it's just like it's just a bar. Um, I do also wonder if Doctor Who has other machines to serve basic human needs, such as the sleep machine, because you never That's see right. anyone really sleeping in the TARDIS. Um, what other kind of machines might he have? He might have the, um, the going to the loo machine. Yeah, well, we, we never get a toilet, but we do get those chairs that come out the wall in the edge of destruction. That yeah. Richard Martin calls couple. them the sleeping pods. Apparently, that's what they were called. <laughs> very, very spacey. Yes, yeah, so... so He's got. He's obviously got everything in there that someone could need, but it all comes from machines. So you know, he's a scientist. What can you expect? But there's a real effort here, isn't it, to make the TARDIS domestic, like yes. that wasn't there in an unearthly child. In the unearthly child, it was supposed to be this extraordinary space that we don't comprehend. Whereas now, this is this is our safe space, and the yes. outside the TARDIS is the scary space. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, I, it was, I thought it was Chris Barry's idea to explore. Oh, hang on. We've just got a sneaky Doctor Who sneaking about with a fluid leaf yeah. there. Oh, no, that won't break it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's buggered it. Like, I'm sorry, right? If I was watching him and he picked up that thing and then in a minute he goes, oh, that's the very thing that's broken. I'd be like, really? <laughs> Silly old Doctor. But um, just on the subject of domestic stuff in the TARDIS, I'd love to see more of the food machine, more of what life's like on board the TARDIS, because after this, we never do. And not until you the know. 80s, when, when the domesticity goes crazy, doesn't it, in the 80s? But still, you never get, you know, I mean, like somewhere, from somewhere, Tegan produces pineapple for the first <laughs> Doctor to eat. The, the kitchen is fully operational. <laughs> I want to see the TARDIS kitchen. I want to see the TARDIS... I want to see, you know, a proper version of the swimming pool, not the one we saw in bloody... Um, oh, Journey to the Centre of the Tardis. Oh, sorry, I'm thinking about the new series one. That was even worse, I thought. <laughs> oh, Journey to the Centre of the Tardis was not what I wanted. I expected more than a few corridors in the library. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and then some location filming for some reason. Mm. Still... Never you've mind. got, I know you've got a few documents to hand, including the first Doctor Handbook. I'm going to call yes. upon you per episode to give me ratings watch, because I don't Ooh. actually know what they are. So where, where was episode one? How did we I'm afraid you're going to have to fill for me while I look up the ratings. Oh, I can so do I it, don't you for myself. Um, I will uh, spend a bit of time talking about William Hartnell's extraordinary wig there that's in extreme <laughs> disarray. And also how the fault locator... Um, opens out the TARDIS console room. Um, I think it's a terrific bit of design. It's a shame they don't do it again. Yeah, you know why they got rid of the fault locator in the end? Go on. Developed a fault. Oh, um, you know, so. <laughs> so this was broadcast on the 21st of the 12th, 1963, just before Christmas okay. at 17.16. Uh, it lasts 24 minutes and 22 seconds and got 6.9 million viewers at number 67 in the charts. See, that's not bad, is it? 6.9. That's, that's all right. That's all right. I mean, it's 67 in the charts. No, that's not too high. I'm looking at the rest of the figures and, ooh, uh, yeah. there's a change. I can't wait to see where, where we end up in episode seven. Yeah. Okay, but, so in yeah. the Doctor Who and the Daleks movie, 
they seem to make the implication that this is a bomb because at one point Barbara goes, "Be careful, it might go off." Like, they're a bit more sensible here. They just pick it up. Yes, well, I mean, it's obviously drugs, isn't it? Uh, if somebody leaves a little silver uh, tablet out for you in the middle of the forest that you thought was the dead planet, uh, what else is it going to be? Um, a lovely selection of drugs. I have a question for you then, Stephen. So I'm okay. assuming you've seen the Peter Cushing movie, Doctor Who and the yes. Daleks. Now, they managed to do episode one in about eight minutes in that movie. Like, like the whole of the bits in the TARDIS, getting to Scarrow, exploring the city, finding the city, getting to the city. Um, mm -hmm. For some reason, they completely skip over the brilliant cliffhanger. Um, <laughs> do you think this material, like, is worth an entire episode, the, the exploration of the planet? I think it's, uh, well, I just love this episode. Mm. Um, I love every moment of it because it goes, you know, it does a few different things. So you've got a bit of exploration of the jungle. And I also love it when Doctor Who just explores an alien world and just potters about and finds odd things. Um, right. I always think that's because the, the potential's there, you know, you don't know what's around the corner. And I think this story does it quite well. Um, you and must... there's the indication that they're all dying of radiation poisoning, which, right. I don't know, is slightly irritating because they should realise by now. But... I love that element of it, though, the, the, the realism of that and the way they play mm. it out in, in the next episode. I've got a, question, a second question on the back of you, then, because Terry Nation does what you just described there, exploring an alien planet, in basically every episode one of every story he wrote. So what's your favourite yeah. one of that? Um... He's he's never he's never better this he's never better the back of the Daleks has he? Um, I, I mean I have one but um, I, I yeah. don't want you to stop talking to me. So <laughs> so I absolutely your... adore um, the first episode of Planet of the Daleks on Spyridon. Ah. Um, I yes, well it's it's basically the same as this, isn't it? Except in colour. Um, oh, oh, it's and exactly the same people. as this. I mean, plot beat by plot beat is exactly the same as this. Yeah. So here we are in the Dalek city with its amazing corridors that are not designed for human beings no. and are clearly designed for some alien creature. Do you see that perspective corridor there that's going back and back? Yes. And and the yes. way the camera's tilted to make it just a bit weirder than it would otherwise be. Yeah, yeah. And Barbara getting lost on her own in the alien city. That poor school teacher. Um uh, you know, it's really nerve-wracking because she's she's just like she's holding it together. She's doing all right, but you can tell she's on the edge of losing it. Yeah, um, I've got to be honest. I would not split up from the other three, or I would not be going around this city on my own. <laughs> no, no, it's not a terribly good idea, is it? Watch this. Um, Watch the invention here, where she touches the yeah. camera like it's a wall. That's. I mean, yes. they're they're just using what they've got, aren't they? Really well. Yeah, and the claustrophobia of it, and I don't know, I, it's it's just a wonderfully atmospheric sequence that would do any sort of like horror movie, well, maybe not any horror movie, but, you know, the tension's building up really well. I'm, I'm going to do something in a second, I'm, which I have never done on any of these commentaries, but I'm going to ask you to be quiet, only because, and that's what, because what you're saying is not interesting, I just want you to hear the sound effects in the city. And the weird alien noises they're doing. Unfortunately, they're not on at the moment, so we need to keep talking. <laughs> oh, here we go. Wait, wait, wait. 
Can you hear that? Like all that weird echoey noises. And it matches the silvery material on the wall. It feels like the right kind of echo, doesn't it? Yeah. Do you know what? You know, in the new series where they say they have a tone meeting and so that everyone's on the same page, it feels like they've had a tone meeting for this story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Look at this simple effect of the lift with just a bit of cardboard coming down. Oh, poor Barbara. But it kind of feels like the city's um, deliberately trapping her, doesn't it? Yes. And there was another thing that I didn't pick up there, but I should have done, which is the camera the electronic eye that was following her around, which yeah. is something that was so rare in the 1960s, but is uh, is everywhere now. It's so common now, isn't it? Very, very um, much so. So that would have been even more frightening. Oh, my God. You know and... what this is, Stephen. You know what's coming up. <laughs> the best yeah. cliffhanger. And now I, I will not brook any argument. This is the best cliffhanger. <laughs> What is it? What is it? I'm gobsmacked. Ah! <laughs> so, oh, now, I think we've both proven there how we could not have done that as well as Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't scream like that. And of course, uh, uh, Terry Nation was at home that evening uh, and all his friends had watched it and they're all phoning up right now saying, Terry, Terry, what was that? What the hell was that? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know. I just put basic instructions in the script that it was a box or something. <laughs> Did you ever hear yeah. um, Ray Cusack? He, he says in the documentary, Terry, why do you always describe the Doctor and companions come into a white featureless? Why is everything white and featureless in your scripts? <laughs> <laughs> the fact that they got those designs out of that description. Incredible. Oh, yes. Well, well it's cheaper, isn't it? It surely is. Uh, Stephen, that was literally gripping. And uh, now let's head on into episode two. Woohoo!